The reading this morning can be found on page 970 of the Pew Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your Father, Heavenly Father, is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Well, very good morning to you, and may I wish you all a very happy new year. And uh, please keep that passage open uh, in front of you. It's on page 970, if you've closed it. And um, on the back of the service sheets, you'll find an outline of where we're going to go this morning. Uh, before we start, though, let's, uh, let's pray. Jesus says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that this morning we would be like wise men and women. That as we hear Jesus' teaching, that you would give us understanding and that you would help us to put it into practice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our passage this morning touches on one of our deepest human desires. It's a desire you may have already felt this morning, perhaps over the last week, and almost certainly over the last 12 months. It's a desire that no one has to teach us. Children learn it from the earliest age, and it stays with us our whole lives. It is the desire for justice, for personal justice. We love nothing more, don't we, than getting justice for ourselves, of setting things right, of recognizing wrong done against us. As a culture, we talk about our human rights, our voter rights, our consumer rights, and it's a desire that can dominate our thought life, driving us to great lengths. And yet, Jesus says this morning, verse 39, do not resist an evil person. Do not stand up for your rights. I've been looking forward to teaching this passage for a while. Um, I've really wanted to get into the Sermon on the Mount, um, and here's my chance. But as I've prepared it, I found some of this to be the most difficult teaching I've ever had to engage with. And as I've looked at it and thought about Jesus' words, I felt two temptations in my heart, and um, it might be that we 
feel those two temptations this morning as well. First of all, it's the temptation to ignore Jesus' teaching. Now, of course, you'll say we're St. Mary's, we're a Bible church, we'd, we'd never ignore Jesus' teaching. And perhaps that wouldn't be your intention. But we can hear Jesus' teaching and say to ourselves things like, well, that's just unworkable in practice. That would lead to all sorts of chaos. That doesn't fit my personal circumstances. And the second temptation is this, to distort Jesus' teaching. Again, that wouldn't be our intention. But there is the danger of interpreting Jesus' teaching so that it loses its strength. I mean, how many of us, I've done it myself, have responded to verse 44, love your enemies, with, well, of course Jesus doesn't want me to be a doormat. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that these verses don't require thinking through and carefully apply from their context to our context. We do need to do that work. And our personal circumstances will vary. That To obey these verses will look very different for each one of us. But we do need to be alert to those dangers of underplaying the strength of what Jesus is saying here, of turning down the volume on his voice. Well, let's dive in. The passage is split into two halves, uh, marked by those two points on your handouts. And um, the first is a kind of more negative uh, picture, uh, what not to do. And then the second half, the second paragraph, is the kind of more positive, what we should do instead. So let's start with that first paragraph then, verse 38. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Now, Jesus quotes there from the Old Testament law, And it's a phrase we've probably heard, and um, I think it's a phrase that a lot of people wince at. Um, Non-Christian friends have um, quoted it to me as evidence of what they think is a kind of vindictiveness in the Old Testament. But actually, the context is about legal cases. It's for the law courts. It's the principle of the punishment fitting the crime. Now, we're all used to that idea um, in our everyday lives. If you've got kids... Um, you'll know this uh, principle. If your child tips their dinner on the floor, well, then they go in time out. But if your child tips their brother or sister on the floor, then the consequences are more serious. And we're used to that idea in our law courts, aren't we? You know, speeding is punished differently to murder. But actually, where my friends are on to something is in the application of that principle. See, eye for eye, tooth for tooth is a right legal principle But Jesus is criticizing people who had applied it to their own personal dealings. So if someone wronged them, they would seek justice. They would seek an apology. They would seek revenge. They would seek compensation. But Jesus says, do not resist the evil person. Do not seek personal retribution. And Jesus gives us four examples of what that might look like, where we might look for justice. And notice right at the outset that Jesus isn't saying that the wrong done to us isn't that bad. He recognizes it as wrong. He calls it evil. But he shows us that our personal rights are not to be everything. Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, the slap on the face was a kind of mark of dishonor in the culture. And, um, I mean, there's something of that today, isn't there? I mean, a punch is seen as a kind of act of violence. And a slap on the face, it's a a bit less painful, um, but there's something kind of demeaning about it. 
And a slap on the right cheek, which Jesus speaks about, required the back of the hand. I mean, I had to sit in my study this week and try this out on myself, so I've got a bit of a sore face. But the point is, it, it took away someone's honor. It embarrassed them. It insulted them. I mean, so much so in this culture, you could take someone to court and get awarded compensation. You know, if you'd been involved in a slap that wasn't your fault, that kind of thing. And I think this teaching, therefore, is primarily an issue about being dishonored. It's not saying that in the face of violence or an abuser that we shouldn't flee. But when we are insulted, Jesus tells us, we're not to retaliate. We can let our honor go. When we're misunderstood and our words are used against us, don't just think, how can I get even? When people post on our Facebook page and it shames us and everything in us wants to justify ourselves and put our point across, don't just do what everyone else does and fight back. When we're mistreated at work, when we're belittled in front of others, don't just think vengeance and compensation. Your personal rights are not everything. We can allow our personal honor to go. Turn to them, the other cheek. The tunic in verse 40 was uh, an undergarment. It's a bit like a shirt. And Jesus says that if someone sues you for it, give them your cloak or coat as well. Now, that might not seem hugely relevant to us. I imagine not many of us will find ourselves in court defending our wardrobe. But that is to miss Jesus' point. See, there was a special provision in the Old Testament law for the cloak. Courts couldn't take your coat from you because it acted um, as a sleeping bag. It would keep you warm at night and it would be too much of a punishment to remove it from you. But Jesus says, give up your legal right. Does this mean we never fight legal cases? Well, I doubt Jesus means that. We might want to contend issues, especially if they have wider implications for others. But I do think Jesus questions our motivations. Are we all about getting justice for us, of protecting our rights, of defending my personal honor? There's one Christian I know who was turned down for a prestigious job when the employer found out that they were a Christian. Now, that's not just me kind of exaggerating for dramatic effect. It was as explicit as that. And a lawyer pointed out to him just how much of a clear-cut case that would be of discrimination and how he could sue. But he chose not to contend it. Now, some of us, I know, I thought it myself, might just think, is that not foolish? Someone brings charges against me in court or work, why wouldn't I defend myself? What an unworkable example. But before we get too dismissive, let's remember Jesus. 1 Peter says this, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. The idea of being forced to go a mile in verse 41 refers to the right of a Roman soldier to ask someone to carry their stuff uh, in an occupied nation. They could do it for one mile maximum. And obviously, that's not what people wanted to do. I mean, there's a hassle of it. I hate carrying stuff back from town. Um, I imagine they did as well. But, but more than that, there was the humility of it. 
because every step was a reminder that your nation was in the control of someone else. But Jesus says, do not just do what they can legally demand of you. Give them two miles. Don't just think about your rights. Give them extra. The same with those who who ask or beg in verse 42. Give to those who ask, Jesus says. Now, of course, does that mean that we have to do everything someone asks us? Well, I doubt it. Jesus, I don't think, is dismissing discernment. I remember one incident when I was a bit younger. Um, my friend, shall we say, he was a bit kind of worse for wear after a night out. And um, he, I think he promised to take me home, and um, he, he insisted on keeping, on, uh, keeping that promise. He offered to drive me home. And so I did the kind of responsible thing. I took the keys off him. I said, don't worry, mate. But he begged me uh, for the opportunity to be his taxi, uh, my taxi driver that evening. And he got angry. What should I have done, according to verse 42? Should I have given to the one who was asking? Well, luckily, when he was protesting, he just fell asleep like that, so I didn't have to answer the question. But the point is, discernment is not wrong. But I was very challenged by someone speaking on these verses who asked whether what we call discernment really masks a desire to keep our possessions to ourselves. You know, someone begs me for money on the street to buy a train ticket, and I say to myself, look, I'll do them a favour. I know they're just spending on drink or drugs. And, and so I walk away feeling pleased with myself that I've not been conned out of my money. Now, I'm not saying that we all have to give money to those who ask. We should exercise discernment. We are to give, but we might not necessarily give the thing that's being asked for. But Jesus is putting our attitude to our possessions under the microscope. Do we call it discernment? But it's really about us standing on our rights to keep our stuff to ourselves. Now, some of you will be asking yourselves, and I did myself when I looked at it, why on earth would we do this? Why would we give up on our personal rights? Why would I not put myself first when I've been wronged? And the answer to that becomes clearer in the second part of the passage, and that's what we're going to move on to now. Jesus says, verse 43, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What's Jesus getting at? Well, he's quoting a part of the Old Testament there. Um, I say partly because uh, he adds these words, hate your enemy. That wasn't part of the original command. But Jesus' point is that's how the command had been taken. His audience knew that they had a duty to love their neighbor, and they thought that their neighbor meant the fellow Jewish person. And so they didn't have that same duty to love the non-Jewish person. And for enemies... Or hate's kind of understandable, isn't it? But Jesus is saying, no, that command to love your neighbor extends even to your enemies or persecutors. I mean, just imagine the strength of what Jesus is saying here in the context of an occupied nation. Praying is one of the most loving things we can do for a person. It's about wanting good for someone else. And of course, that good might be someone's conversion or it might be a change in mindset. But it's very difficult, isn't it, to plead with God for something good 
to happen to someone we hate. And Jesus' big point here is we're not to limit our love to those who love us, but we're to love everyone, even love those who don't love us back, even our enemies. That's the point of verse 46. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And not even the tax collectors doing that. You know, Christians aren't the only people who love others. We haven't got a monopoly on love. Even tax collectors, even those people at the bottom of the moral scale, love those who love them. There's nothing special about that sort of love. During my time at college, I spent a bit of time in prison, uh, as a placement, that is, as part of the chaplaincy team. And I was very struck during that placement just by the bonds that people had the friendships that were there, the love that was in that place. Even amongst convicted criminals, there is love. Everyone's able to love those who are lovable. That comes so naturally to us. But here's the point. That type of love is always limited. But God's love is not limited in that way. Uh, The rain, verse 45, tells uh, tells us, he sends on the good and the evil, on the righteous and the unrighteous. I mean, you've got to kind of get yourself in a Middle Eastern view of rain here. Rain's not a bad thing if you're in the desert. And God, the point is that God doesn't just show his love. He doesn't just send the rain on those who deserve it. He sends it on all. We might be asking ourselves, why would I love someone who wrongs me? Why on earth would I show kindness to that friend who has ruined my reputation? Why should I forgive my spouse when he or she has hurt me so deeply? Why should I pray for good to happen to that person at work who I know gossips about me? Why would I love someone who doesn't deserve it? And in a sense, that's right. They don't deserve it. But remember, nor do we. God loves us when we don't deserve it. Here's Romans 5. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. See, we were not lovable. We were not good. We were enemies. But God loved us. Our understanding of love, I think, in our culture is one of the tragic ironies of our age. Uh, Over the Christmas break, I was vegging out a bit and I got to watch a bit of telly. And um, I was watching some stand-up comedy. And uh, I was watching this uh, one set. And uh, at the end, the comedian kind of walked out. But as she did, she turned around to the audience and said, Merry Christmas and um, make sure you love one another. Be kind to one another, something along those lines. And it caught my attention a bit because I thought that's a bit like what I do at church. At the end, I pray, go and serve the Lord, that sort of thing. And it was happening on this comedy program. And a day or so later, um, I was watching another program featuring the same comedian. Yes, I did watch a lot of telly. And um, she was talking about someone who she perceived as being prejudiced. And uh, I cannot repeat what she called him on a Sunday morning, but it was clearly words of hatred. The most polite word was moron. And that's how our culture tends to view love, isn't it? It's not that we don't value love. 
We love love. We speak about love. We wear t-shirts with love written on them. We sing about love. Ed Sheeran writes a song saying love can change the world in a moment. We say, don't be a hater. But if someone doesn't love us back, or is perceived to go against our values, or is seen as a hater, then we can give them hell. And of course, we have to admit that we as Christians are not immune from this tendency. We can say that we love, but those public figures who deny God publicly, who mock him, well, they can be laid into on social media. We say that we love, but those people who deny scripture, perhaps those even in the church, can be mocked, can be insulted. And we can think to ourselves, and I've done this myself, it's okay, they've done something really bad. But the trouble is, everyone's got a story like that. Everyone has a story when they ill-treat another person of why that person deserves it. And if we think that we've got a reason not to love someone, do we not think that Jesus has got an even greater reason? Did not Jesus know firsthand what it was to have enemies and persecutors? And he teaches us, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Again, don't mishear me. I'm not underplaying the severity of denying Scripture. I think it's one of the gravest mistakes people can make. And I do not mean by this, I don't think Jesus means that we do not criticize hypocrisy or protest for what is right or defend the truth. I think they're all important things. But Jesus asks that when we do that, is our heart for that person? Are we for their good ultimately? Many of you would have read the experiences of Corrie ten Boom. She was a Christian who, um, uh, during the World War II, hid and protected Jewish people in her home in Nazi-occupied Holland. And her and her sister, Betsy, were caught and sent to a concentration camp, and her sister sadly died. And a few years later, Corrie was speaking on forgiveness in a church in Munich. And as she was speaking, she noticed that one in her audience was a guard from the concentration camp. At the end of the talk, he came up to her and said this, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Freilane. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? Corrie writes, And I stood there. I, whose sins every day had to be forgiven, and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I have ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. And I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood in my whole being 
bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Just imagine what that sort of love might do for our world. A love that loves even the unlovable. Maybe you're not a Christian this morning. Maybe you just think that sounds a million miles away from a sort of life you would like. But you've got to admit there's something attractive here, isn't there? Ed Sheeran is right that love can change the world in a moment. The trouble is it needs to be the love that Jesus teaches. That's the only love that can change the world. I said at the beginning, this has been some of the most challenging teaching I've had to consider, and it it probably is for lots of us today, I get that. It's like being for me, like looking in a mirror, I've had to hold my own life up and ask, do I love like this? And I wonder what areas in your life the Spirit is challenging you over as you listen to Jesus' teaching. Where do we need to turn to love like this? A friend? A family member? A church member? And if this was the standard we had to meet to become part of God's people, then all of us would fall short. I mean, I've not even loved people I love properly, let alone those people who have hurt me. And when we hear a passage like this, it's easy, I think, to feel crushed or to kind of try and pull our socks up and try and resolve to to try a bit harder. But the truth is that we can never love like this. We can never do it. But one has. See, there is one who did not resist the evil person. He was struck on the cheek and did not retaliate. He gave up his garments to the soldiers. He walked every mile willingly to the cross. He gave mercifully to those who asked. He loved his enemies. He prayed for those who persecuted him. He pleaded for those who were hammering nails into his hands. See, Jesus Christ lived this teaching in a way that we can never do. And his obedience, not ours, makes us right before God. So that God sees us as he sees him. We are to follow the Lord's teaching. We are to follow his example of love. But we do so having already been treated as if we loved like Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we hear these words, we've got to admit, and myself included, that our love falls so far short of what Jesus sets out here. And we pray, Father, for your Spirit's enabling, that you would help us to live out um, Jesus' example of love and his teaching here. Pray, Father, for those of us who that is especially difficult, who have been hurt in particularly strong ways. Pray, Father, that you would comfort them and that you would help them to put into practice Jesus' teaching. And we thank you, Father, that um, our acceptance before you does not depend on our ability to, to do this. We thank you that Jesus has gone before us and that we are clothed in his righteousness. And we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.